Hey there, welcome to the Uncomfortable is Okay podcast. I am your host, Chris Desmond. This is a show where I chat with interesting people doing fascinating things who inspire me to get out of my comfort zone through their actions and ideas. Today, I am chatting with Jerem Watts, who is the CEO of Child Rescue New Zealand. Now, Child Rescue is a charitable uh, organization who rescue children, mostly female children, who have been caught up in the sex trade. Now, this is obviously incredibly important work, but as well as the rescue of these girls, they also help restore them and rehabilitate them afterwards. So dealing with the emotional harm, the physical harm, the mental harm, um, and preparing them for a, for a, a life away from the sex trade. So Jerem today tells us how he got into working with child rescue and it led from kind of a disenchantment for uh, from working in the journalism industry in New Zealand and then actually quite an opportune uh, trip to visit his friend over in Thailand. So obviously Jerem tells us about the, the rescue process, the rehabilitation process and, and all the important work that they do. Currently, Child Rescue have, in conjunction with their their international charity partner, have rescued 2,300 children, and they have the lofty goal of rescuing 100,000 by 2020. Also today, Jerem talks about shaping his identity, deciding who he was and what was important to him, then consistently making the choices to live in line with that. We chat about dealing with the negative voices inside and how Jerem gets past them. He talks about how faith is a really important driver for him um, and and one of the most important things for shaping his identity and uh, the man that he wants to be as well as in dealing with the work and all the hurt that he has to in his role for child rescue. We also talk about finding a unique voice in a market that's oversaturated with charities. Um, apparently there's 27,000 charities in New Zealand, which is something that I didn't, didn't know before talking with Jerem. Today's conversation is, is really fascinating. It's, it's pretty raw at times with the stuff that Jerem talks about. Um, but also there's so many takeaways from that as well make sure that you head over and uh, check out child rescue and, and help jerem out if you if you can uh, whether that's with a donation or whether that's with uh, kind messages or putting him in touch with people that that he can talk to to help get his message out there as always, you can share this episode out too and get uh, Jerem's message in front of more people. So thank you for getting uncomfortable with me and Jerem today.
Jerem. Welcome to the Uncomfortable Is Okay podcast. Uh, it's awesome to sit down and have a have a chat with you today after being put in touch by uh, Tommy Maharaj. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, it's it's my pleasure, mate. Um, Jerem, there are a lot of things that I want to have a chat with you about today, but why don't you give us a little bit of background about about yourself, uh, kind of where you were born, where you grew up, the the young Jerem Watts, your hopes and dreams as a child. Yeah, wow. Big well, question. I'm, yeah, I'm uh, just just turned 29 a uh, couple of weeks ago. So, um, been in Wellington for the past six years. Born and raised in in Auckland, but I'm I'm getting close to claiming uh, Wellingtonian status. Yeah. I feel more Wellingtonian than Auckland now. Every time I go home, I I just can't can't see myself ever living back there again. Um, but yeah, grew up on the North Shore of Auckland. Um, one of my parents, middle, middle brother, older brother, younger brother. Um, yeah, just great, great memories of, of growing up in Glenfield, family holidays up in Whangarei, lots of surfing, lots of beach trips. Um, just, yeah, nothing but fondness, fond memories of my, of my upbringing. Just, uh, you know, really tight knit family that loved each other and cared for each other and brothers who you know typical brothers you know beat each other up and yeah. you know poke fun at each other but at the end of the day just love each other deeply yeah yeah i i understand where you're coming from i'm one of three brothers as well thankfully i'm the, the oldest so i was doing most of you the had beating that, you have that Rather sensibility than, i had the i had the i had the size on my side uh <laughs> when there was when there were fights when we were younger yeah um uh, my brothers both are, uh, they're around about the same size as me now, but I don't, we don't tend to fight too much, uh, yeah, any, anymore. Yeah, a little yeah. bit of a push around every yeah, now yeah. and then, more Got for to. fun than anything. Um, cool. So grow up on the, grow up on the shore. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned also that you, you were pretty keen on journalism and mm. reporting. Was that something that started at quite a young age for you? I'd always wanted to, I'd always had a passion for news. I mm-hmm. just remember every day, six o'clock, turn on TV one, you know, Richard Long, Judy Bailey. I just loved it. Just loved seeing what was happening in the world. Loved hearing about stories, loved seeing people's stories. I liked information and being updated. So journalism, I think was always there for me, but I actually grew up wanting to be a physio. I did you? Funnily <laughs> enough. <laughs> that is good. That is amusing, actually. Yeah. And so I went through high school, you know, with the dream of, you know, I'm going to study towards being a physiotherapist. And then one day, uh, I don't know why I thought it, but as I was looking at university options, I thought, do I really want to go to work and touch people every day? And for whatever reason, I just thought, no, I, mm. I don't. And that kind of, in, in a split second, my, uh, choices, change and I thought well if it's not physio what is it and then immediately for me it was well I love news so I'll be a journalist so on a dime my uh got to AUT did a journalism degree from 07 to 09 spent half of 2008 studying at the Danish School of Journalism in Denmark just for a bit of a overseas experience and hopefully you know set me apart on my CV from all the other graduates who'd be you know graduate AUT at the same time as me so and that was an interesting experience. In it itself. would have been. Was that um, predominantly English speaking? Yeah, they have a really good yeah. good setup there. They offer an international semester, so yeah. I was studying journalism with people from twenty two different countries, but it was taught in English, so that everyone mm-hmm. everyone had to be fluent in English to understand it. But yeah, it was fantastic. 
what did you what did you kind of learn other than the journalism mm-hmm. side of things from going over and, and spending the time uh, the spending the semester there? Like you, I'm sure that there were a lot of kind of life lessons you picked up from going and living and studying in another country. Yeah, um, the the biggest one for me was the impact on my on my personal faith. Um, I'm a Christian. I went over there, you know, uh, wanting to be a really positive influence for Christianity. I wanted to be a, a good role model to all my classmates. And until that point, I'd been living at home, and so I'd always lived my life, um, you know, in a Christian home, going to a Christian school, and so I knew that I was a Christian. Um, but it wasn't until I stepped out from underneath my parents' roof and put myself out there, you know, on the opposite side of that world that kind of my whole world came tumbling down because I had gone over there with noble intentions, but I, you know, I went the other way. I was, you know, partying and drinking and doing all sorts of, you know, foolish things. I just completely went the other way and I hit, hit rock bottom in a bad way at the end of that year. And I, um, just, I remember waking up one morning with just the, you know, the worst hangover I'd ever had. And I thought, is this who I am? You know, I've spent my whole life, you know, growing up in a Christian home, believing this. How did I get to this point? You know, and I knew at that point that I had been, you know, while I believe my faith was, was genuine, it had been propped up by just doing what I'd always done. And so that moment for me, I thought, if this is going to be me, if this is real for me, I need to own this. I can't live any longer being a Christian just because that's the way I grew up. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to hold on to these beliefs and I'm going to choose this. And so that was just a massive defining moment in my life. And probably the biggest turning point for me was that that day, October 2008. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Did you get an answer to the question how you got to that point? Um, yeah, the answer was that I'd just been doing whatever I wanted. You know, I mm-hmm. thought, um, you know, a life well lived is just doing whatever you want, no boundaries, no rules, but that's the fastest way to ruin, really. So I, I, I think I started to see the moral boundaries that that God gives in the Bible and that Christianity adheres to as actually really good things. Um, you know, use the analogy of, of a fire, you know, a fire is a really good thing and a fireplace, you know, if you think of a fireplace as the moral boundaries for the fire, mm. the fire is a good thing. But if you take away those boundaries, that fire is going to burn a house down, burn a city down, you know? So there's, there's reasons why, um, you know, Christianity says, God says, this is the way to live for our own good. And so I saw myself, chasing after these other things, pursuing selfish gain and just whatever pleasure that I wanted. And it ended up, you know, sending me to a really bad, broken, unhappy place. Yeah, mm. yeah I think it's a, it's a tough lesson to learn mm. uh, sometimes. Um, but, I mean, I, in, the, in the scheme of things, you probably learnt it relatively quickly. Yeah. Uh, you could have you could have travelled down there for a for a wee bit longer there. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, that, that's really good. So big takeaway from going and studying overseas. Came back and a bit more study in New Zealand. Yeah, one yep. more. Yeah. Yep. Cool. And then where did you go from there? End of my degree, the um, 
editor of the Three News website reached out to our class and said, I need people to work for me for free for, you know, a couple of months over the weekends, just doing live updates for the Super 15 for the All Blacks tests. Mm-hmm. It's unpaid, but it'll look good on your CV. And I was only one of, you know, two or three people who put their hand up for it. But I thought, man, even if I don't get a job, it's, you know, a good experience. And so I spent every weekend for two months writing live updates on the Hurricanes Crusaders, the David Tua Cameron fight, which was amazing. Um, mm. And then at the end of that two months, the one of the editors resigned as I finished my internship. And then the chief editor says, hey, timing looks pretty good. Do you want a job? And so straight out of uni, I finished uni on a Wednesday. On a Thursday, I started at TV3. And from there, I was an online editor for Three News for a year and a half, just you know, doing updates, not really journalism work. And so after 18 months, I got pretty, pretty over it. This isn't why I did a degree. And then just started talking to a few of the bosses saying, look, I'd really like to give television a go. They said the job's coming up in Wellington, applied for that, got it, moved down to Wellington, started 2011 and TV career kind of began from there. Awesome. Um, I mean, there are a couple of things out of that that I wanted to chat about. The first one's pretty superficial. Mm. Is when you were doing the live updates, did they send you along to the games? Or did you just watch them on TV? I was watching Sky. Uh, <laughs> that's unfortunate. I was in the office watching Sky, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's not quite as cool as no. I thought it might have been, um, especially the Tour Cameron fight. Yeah. Um, all right, so a little bit more serious now. When you when you kind of became disenchanted about the stuff that you were doing in the, in the editing side of things, was it a challenge for you to go and ask for, ask for more opportunities from people or is that something that you were quite comfortable doing? That, that was a challenge for me because I never wanted to seem ungrateful mm-hmm. because I knew I'd been given, you know, when I, uh, at the end of the internship, when I got the job, a hundred other people had applied for the job but they, you know, more qualified people were journalists, but they, they gave it to me for whatever reason. But, and so I didn't want to seem ungrateful by saying, look, I'm, I'm bored of this now. You know, I don't want to seem like this job is now beneath me. I want to go and chase the television dream. So I, I had to be, I wanted to be careful that my approach and asking was, was humble and not, you know, I've outgrown this. This is beneath me. I want to be a TV star. So. I was just very wary of the way that I made that approach. So it, it was uncomfortable because I didn't want to upset my boss or, you know, seem ungrateful. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Were there kind of strategies that you used to kind of work through that feeling? Um, I wouldn't say strategies, but I just knew, I knew if I made the right approach, if I knew that, I wasn't, you know, demanding it or speaking poorly of my boss or complaining about the job. But if the way that I presented it to uh, the bosses I was asking was, look, I've, I really appreciate everything that you've done for me the past year and a half, but I feel like I'm ready for a new challenge. And so I just knew that it was all going to be in, in the framing of the approach. So yeah. And I knew that, you know, my bosses are reasonable people. They understand, you know, a young 21 year old with ambition. So. Mm. Yeah, they were good about it. Cool, cool. Uh, so you came down to Wellington and started working uh, in journalism. Yeah. Something that you enjoyed? 
the 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 move to Wellington. Or? The move to Wellington in the in the new role. Yeah, the move to Wellington is 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 one of the best things that ever happened to me. You know, I moved down without knowing a soul. I just you know things were going well for me in Auckland, but I just I'd hit a bit of a rut. You know, thing I was kind of day in day out, bit of groundhog day. Didn't really have a lot going for me. And so I knew that the move to Wellington was a chance for like a clean slate, fresh start, you know, new, new opportunities, new city, new friends, new everything. So I was really pumped, really pumped about it. And just getting that chance to, to build a new community with people who, you know, uh, they didn't know everything that I'd done growing up. I, I grew up in a, in a somewhat of a small school. So being a, um, you know, I was, captain the first 11 captain the tennis team head boy so i grew up as a as a big fish in a, in a small pool um so i i quite liked moving to once and having the anonymity of, of just being another being another face in the crowd and, and being able to you know create new first impressions with people not that my old ones were bad but i enjoyed the freshness of it mm-hmm. yeah and kind of almost shaping a new identity for yourself yeah. within that yeah in some yeah. ways yeah yeah were there kind of just following that thread a little bit? Were there changes in the identity that you wanted to create for yourself compared to who you had been? Yeah, I think so. I'd I'd been, and I think that that probably uh, stems from that that moment I had in in October two thousand eight in Denmark mm. because because I'd been um, everyone knew that I, I was I was a Christian. My main circle were were, were Christians, but I. I wasn't living how I wanted to. I was still just just doing it in name only, and I thought, man, I really want to break free from this. I want to I want to live like what I profess. I want to mm-hmm. live like how Jesus says to live in the Bible. And everything, not everything, but a lot of how I've lived up until this point just doesn't stack up. I just felt like felt like in some ways a bit of a phony, and so. Getting to come to Wellington was a chance to be, be the, the Christian, the man that I wanted to be and to portray that from the start. Not, and, and in a really authentic way, because I knew that when I created new friendships that, you know, you, you tell about who you were and, you know, that authenticity comes through. But I wanted the new friends in the new circles that I made to, to meet a germ, to meet the germ that I wanted to be. And that was, you know, faithful, consistent, solid, loyal, knows what he believes, stands on what he believes, knows his boundaries, you know. So being able to bring up the good things that I knew were in me and live them out was uh, freeing, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was that easy to do? Or were there times that you struggled with that? Yeah, time, times when I struggled because, you know, there's still – yeah, that kind of voice in your head that still says, you know, you're a fake. Mm-hmm. You you are that person that you were up in Auckland. That's the germ. This this isn't the new germ. And just you know, putting that voice to death and saying, no, I don't want to be that guy anymore. This is this mm-hmm. is who I want to be. This is who I am. So yeah, that was a a challenge. But you know, the the man that I was becoming and the man that I'm now is a man that I want to keep becoming if that yeah. makes sense and yeah. so for me it just felt freeing that yeah this is 
this is the way to yeah. live. So it's kind of a c- continual choice that you yeah. made yourself. And do you still have that voice there sometimes? Sometimes, yeah, yeah. But you know, the more you kill those voices, the less the less loud they become. Yeah. And for you, killing those voices is it just that that continual making that choice to yeah. do do to live life the way that you want to be living it? Yeah, definitely. And that's something that I um, I don't know if you've heard of a um, I guess I'll call him a New Zealand philosopher called David Riddell. Uh, the name's familiar. Yeah. yeah. So he, he runs a school called Living Wisdom in Nelson and he has, you know, a whole lot of uh, sayings. He calls them truth coaches, but one of them is about identity. And one of them that he says is, um, I'm going to paraphrase him. He says, you can spend your whole life worrying about your identity or you can realize that your identity is being made up moment by moment with every decision that you make. And that was so freeing for me mm-hmm. because for me, I've been like, ah, you know, who, who am I? Am I this guy? Am I that guy? And then realizing that my identity is being created moment by moment, you know, through every, you know, good thought, good deed, good gesture, or through, you know, everything that makes me more selfless or through everything that makes me more selfish. If that makes mm, sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I like that. Mm. I like that. So David Riddell. He'd be a good yeah, one for your cool. podcast. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get on Google, actually. Um, he would be fascinating. Yeah, I can I can imagine. Yeah. Um, awesome, mate. So back to back to the journalism. Mm. How, long, how long were you doing that for? I was with TV3 all up uh, six years. Yeah, mm. cool. And you mentioned before and I don't know if we'll use the other bit but mm. or we'll use this but but you kind of became a little bit disenchanted with with your role what like what catalyzed that why did why did that happen do you think yeah I think it was the um, you know the Kendall Jenner clickbait mm-hmm. headlines the stuff that I I guess I just saw news in New Zealand and around the world just becoming more and more infotainment and it wasn't um, it's not why I got into it. You know, I mm-hmm. wanted to tell people stories and just the demands that were, were on media, um, you know, they required more with the more content with almost less time. And so we didn't have time to, to really to, to dig deep, to ask really hard questions, to put a lot of research into a story. Cause when we get in the office at nine, we've got till six o'clock to get a minute and a half on television. That's a, that's a lot of TV to mm-hmm. fill. And so you end up cutting corners and just accepting a press release and just accepting what someone tells you without really having time to say why, because if you wanted to delve any deeper, you'd fail to deliver that day. So I got really frustrated with the constraints and just knowing that I wasn't the stories that I was doing, I didn't feel like there was any transcendence in them, didn't feel like I was making a difference. There were days when I just felt, you know, I just, there was heaps of fun stuff to do. You know, there were really great fun stories to tell but I just I wanted to be part of something bigger and so towards the end of my time at TV3 it was started 2014 um, a friend of mine was was helping rescue kids from sex trafficking over in Thailand so I took some time out went to visit him and um, yeah my world got turned on its head mm. yeah so that that kind of was in 2014 mm. Why did you do, why did you decide to go and visit him rather than just taking some time off and going to the beach somewhere in New Zealand? 
Yeah, we'd we'd been in touch for he'd been over there for a few years already. I'd been getting his email updates, mm-hmm. just you know, the stories he was telling were just amazing and and the way that he was telling them I just knew I just knew he'd found a a, a position that fulfilled his passion and he was just living every day passionately knowing that what he was doing was making a difference and I was just man I want to know what that feels like and I just and I and I missed him he was a good friend mm-hmm. so I thought you know here's a here's an opportunity to go and to go and visit to go and visit a friend and see see how he's how he's living and also for me I was getting frustrated that um you know I my heart wasn't really breaking for anything I was quite happy sort of just again living in Wellington you know there was this there was this massive issue that I'd heard about child sex trafficking and I was like I need to go I need to go see this I need to go and see what he does and see how big of a problem this is and and whether or not there's something I can do to help so it was a, it was a, a fishing trip for me yeah yeah can you tell me about the experience that you had in Thailand and what what that meant to you yeah so that first night we were in bangkok and the the boss um my friend's boss called him and said we think there's a child at this bar i need you to go check it out and because the organization's um policy is that no rescue agent goes in by themselves always two by two um he was like sorry man you're gonna have to come with me and so my first night in bangkok I'd, i'd spent 26 years staying away from bars and brothels and strip clubs but found myself in there for the first time in my life with a with a 19 year old sex worker sitting next to me um and it was just the most you know surreal experience um being in such a toxic environment so charged with you know pounding bass and neon lights and you know scantily clad you know women and girls everywhere it was it was almost overwhelming um and I was talking with this with this 19 year old our, our organization child rescue only rescues girls 18 and under and so it turns out this girl was 19 so we according to our mandate we couldn't do anything but I still got her story and, and she she didn't want to be there she had dreams of doing you know something amazing with her life having a career and, and being free but because she didn't really have any educational skills this was the only thing she could do so we left that night and went back to the hotel room and I just just bawled my eyes out because I was so overwhelmed with what I'd experienced but also so heartbroken that he was a 19 year old who had dreams and he wanted to be free but because she didn't have an education or skills she was stuck and if we had gotten to her you know a year two years earlier then she could be free so it was just that sort of struggle that you know we couldn't do anything about it and there were just you know statistically millions of kids like her around the world who you know the latest stats the estimate is 1.8 million children are in the sex trade around the world and that just i can't believe that well i can't believe it but it's just i can't live with that yeah Mm. yeah it's a pretty profound experience to to go through Mm. um so obviously that kind of started uh started a thought process mm. going going for you um and you mentioned before we we hit record that you following that 
experience, you went up into northern Thailand afterwards um, and saw a, a whole lot of uh, people that had been rescued mm. from working in the sex trade. Can you can you talk on that a little bit and, and tell us how you, that affected you as well? Yeah, that was that was a you know a, a remedy to what I'd experienced in Bangkok because we flew north to Chiang Rai and we went to the rescue home there and there were just you know dozens of girls, teenage girls who were running around the rescue home, you know, laughing, playing, doing each other's hair, just so happy, so free, lots of smiles, and I just thought, man, the comparison between them and that girl that I saw in the bar just worlds apart worlds apart and so i just i was so impressed at the difference and just knowing that child rescue was making such a huge difference in these kids lives that they were free they were happy they were able to be kids again you know teenage girls should be able to just be kids they shouldn't have to worry about you know being forced to sleep with men they don't they don't want to but you know being being a 15-year-old girl and being raped every night is just, it just shouldn't happen. shouldn't happen anywhere, but it happens so often all over the place. So seeing the difference Child Rescue made was just, yeah, amazing. Yeah. And how do, how do these girls and how do these children end up in, in the sex trade? Like what's, the, what's the kind of typical path into it? Typical path is is uh, tricked or sold. So a lot of, I mean, there's variations to the story, but the the standard standard story is that a a, a bar owner will go from the city to rural villages, poor villages, and, and go to parents of young daughters and say, "Hey, I'm from the the big city. I'm opening a new restaurant. I've, I need girls to." cook and clean and, and sweep and do pretty menial tasks but it helps my business run smoothly i'll give her x dollars uh, a week and she'll send it home to you and i'll keep her safe and the parents think great you know we're desperately poor our daughter can get a job in town she'll send us money back that's great and they'll send their daughter off pretty naively to this trafficker the girl ends up down in the city and she's not cooking she's not cleaning she's locked up she's you know sometimes girls have been chained put behind bars and then just repeatedly raped until their will is broken and then they're sent out to workers as sex workers and so that's that's one story and the other story is that they're willingly sold we've had girls tell us that their parents out of their you know whether it's their poverty or their greed have just sold their children to a brothel so that they can you know, in one case, a mum wanted some jewellery, so she sold her daughter. In some cases, the parents wanted their boy to go to school, so they'd sell the daughter to pay for the boy's school fees. And there's cultural, religious nuances in there in terms of the value of boys and girls in a lot of those cultures. Boys are far more highly valued, and so they would much rather their son get an education than their daughter. Uh, you know, when I go and speak at, at schools around New Zealand, often I'll say to the boys, you know, chances are if you were in one of these cultures, the only reason you'd be getting education right now is because your sister's body is paying for it. And just, you know, watching that sink in. And, you know, a lot of boys just can't comprehend. Kiwis couldn't comprehend, mm. you know, you know, sacrificing one child for the good of the another. So there's so many layers to it. Yeah. And I think it's, 
throughout probably most of the the, the Western style world, it is, uh, and, and I mean a lot of the other places as well. It's, mm. it's a really hard concept to mm. grasp and to to understand. Mm. Um, so obviously you you were in, in Thailand and you experienced both sides to the to that story. The someone in that the sex trade, mm. um, but also the some of the children that had been had been rescued and were in the process of being um, I think the word you that you guys use is restore mm. afterwards. Um, you, and obviously you had to come back to New Zealand after that. How was that difficult to get on a plane and come back here? Yeah, it killed me. It it really you know felt like I was being torn in two because um when, when I left, you know, I'd, I'd been with my girlfriend at the time for a few months and, you know, she has such a beautiful giving heart and she'd done, you know, voluntary work before. And she essentially said to me, I'm happy to let you go for a year because I know I want to be a missionary. You don't. So go have this experience. And if at the end of it, you love it, great. If you never want to do it again, then we're probably not going to work out. And so she kind of gave me a, a 12 month hall pass. And, uh, at the end of the 12 months, I was like, I don't, I don't, I love you, but I don't know if I want to come home. And so that was a real, um, that was really tough for us because I'd given her my word that I'd only be gone a year. So she was expecting me to come back. But I got to the end of that year and I was just thinking, I, I love this, you know, I, I love this line of work. I can't imagine going back and doing anything else ever again. Mm-hmm. And so, I was torn in two. Um, was that at the the first time you came back from Thailand, or was that the second time that you that you went over? That was the second time. Okay. Yeah. So I'd done those three weeks, come back, quit my job, and moved over. So I was there for a year for the whole of 2015, and then you know decision time came end of 2015 when my year was was coming up, and and it was it was brutal. You know, it it almost nearly was the end of me and of Gabrielle and I. But um, you know, she's she's a very patient and wise woman and she said look i know it's hard but come back we can get married and we can go and do it together again one day you know and that for me was you know that's wise it'd definitely be better you know doing that sort of work you know with someone you love so came back and got married all's well then's well it is it is (laughs) um you've you've stayed involved with child rescue though yes since you came since you came back what are you what are you what's your role with them at the moment and what are you what are you doing with them and for them in new zealand and what are you trying to achieve you can break that up into a couple of different parts That's if you'd yeah, like. yeah I'll, just, I'll just i'll just jump into it yeah. um so yeah my my role now is, is ceo which sounds uh pretty fantastic but i'm also ceo and coffee boy and janitor and secretary and hr because we're an organization of one at the moment here but my role is is essentially to be a voice for the kids um you know i left one of the things that really gave me hope leaving thailand was even though i felt like i was leaving the front lines i was I'm just coming back to a different front line there because we can't do what we do over there without support and so i knew that i was coming back you know in a very privileged and important position to say hey new zealand this is happening there are kids around the world there are 12 year olds nine year olds four year olds two year olds who are being raped every day how do you feel about that 
And this is what we're doing to rescue them, to restore them and to give them hope for a future. Do you want to partner with us? And so it's a real privilege for me to go to schools, to go to churches, to go to businesses and say, look, this is who we are. This is the issue. This is what we're doing about it. And this is how you can join with us in making a difference. So that in a nutshell is, is my role at the moment is trying to create as much awareness as I can for the issue and for what we're doing and raise as, as much support, as much money, as much human resource as possible to, to make a difference. Mm. Mm. And New Zealanders, as a general rule, have been pretty responsive to your message. It's it's really difficult in a in a charity saturated market like New Zealand. We've got twenty seven thousand registered charities Whoa. here, and that that includes churches because churches are registered charities. But in such a saturated market, where where a non profit has to try and find a unique voice. Uh, because there's only so many uh, pockets, so to speak, it, it has been it has been difficult. But um, but I have I've got faith that you know the people who need to hear the message will, and the people who need to respond will. Because I know that this isn't going to be something that that affects everyone. People's hearts break for different reasons. You know, some people are super passionate about starving kids in, in Africa, which is amazing some people are really passionate about you know um social enterprise and helping impoverished people build up you know sustainable employment there's so many issues around the world but i know that there are people in new zealand whose hearts break for kids and and in in the worst ways that they're being exploited like being raped so i know that it's just going to take time to reach every different pocket of new zealand that i can but I know there's people out there who are incredibly generous and people have blown me away already with their generosity. It's amazing. Cool. Yeah, it's it's good to hear that there are lots of lots of people already getting behind you uh, and and the stuff that you're doing. Mm. Does it ever frustrate you not being able to get your message out, the message you want out quickly enough? Yeah, it, it does. Um because I know how great the need is, you know, mm-hmm. I think if we, the only thing that's stopping us from rescuing more and more kids is, is finance. And so for something like money, which there is masses of it in the Western world, for something like that to be the main inhibiting factor of what we do is frustrating. Um, and also just trying to, trying to break through some, some mindsets here of people who are so just New Zealand focused people who are just quite happy to exist in this New Zealand bubble and that all that matters is what happens in New Zealand when I think people need to realize that the world is a really big place and Mm. that what happens to people around the world whether they feel it or not does impact us in some way because if we're not looking out for our brothers and sisters overseas you know who's going to do it if if we were in that situation if, if Wellington happened to be third world if we were the ones struggling to feed our kids, if girls were being taken from their parents and raped every day, we would be screaming for people overseas to come and help us. And if they just said, not my problem, you know, good luck to you guys, you know, how would we feel? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think in New Zealand, we have, we've got a great opportunity to be a leader mm. in uh environmental issues and social issues and to show 
the show the world what like what our potential is mm. um, and often we, we don't don't see that and I think part of that involves calling out stuff that is wrong yeah. and that that shouldn't be happening yeah. and I think that often we don't we don't stand up mm. for that nearly enough and mm. I'm not exactly sure why that is whether that's sort of a, a New Zealand cultural thing hey we don't want to rock the boat there mm. um but I think, yeah, that's uh, it's going to be an interesting challenge for you to continue to to overcome. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I hope it goes, hope it goes well for you. Thank you. Um, what I'd like to have a bit of a chat with you about, Jerem, is obviously spending spending time in uh, in Thailand. You have been involved in both the the rescue side of things. And also the the restorative side mm. of things with it, uh, I think it'd be quite valuable to talk about both sides of that and what that looks like, so that people can understand what what goes on. Mm. Because it's easy to sit here and think uh, there's people getting raped overseas. That's uh, that's something that's horrible, mm. but not actually. Understand exactly what what is happening. Yeah. So you go into you go into places to rescue these the all girls or some boys as well. We have rescued boys before, yeah. but you know, ninety nine percent of our mm. work is girls. Yeah. Yeah. So how did I think? First of all, how do you get in? Yeah. When we when we tell people what we do, I think people's minds immediately go to Liam Neeson from Taken, you know, like <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. kicking yeah. doors down, beating up bad dudes, you know, and that would be awesome yeah. if we had those skills and if mm. that was actually possible. <laughs> but yeah. we, we go into those places looking like any other guy. So we, we just walk in the front door, we take a seat, we order a beer and we, look around at the different girls that are available. Uh, most places we go into, the girls are sort of paraded about. Um, in, um, in the tourist hotspots, they are on stage, they're on poles, they're dancing, they're often just in their underwear. In the most ruthless places, they're all just standing around naked. In other places, when we go into more rural places, the girls will just be serving drinks. Just walking around, you know, handing out beers, filling up your glasses, and in other places still, uh, a pimp will just bring a lineup of girls out. You'll just be standing in a room. He'll bring out a whole bunch of girls and say, which one do you want? And so we just pick the youngest one that we can, whether it's from the lineup or whether it's from stage. So we say to the pimp, look, I like the look of number 23. All the girls just have numbers pinned to them or written on them. And she would come and sit with us. And so many times when the girls sit with us, they are terrified because they don't know what's about to happen to them. Every man that they go sit with will, you know, 99.9% of them are, are there to abuse them. And so, you know, they're used to being molested in public. And so the girls are sitting next to us, not quite sure what's about to happen to them, but that's when our role as uh, rescue agents kicks in because we uh, are kind to them and we smile at them and we ask them questions and we engage with them. We don't touch them poorly or inappropriately. If they, the girls are trained to make sexual advances, but when they do that, we just say, look, I'm not actually, I'm not into that. I just want to get to know you. I, you know, I don't want to do any of that sort of stuff tonight. And the girls find that really confusing because they think, you know, why are you here? 
But once we start to engage with them, be kind to them, then we, you know, the pimp at the same time is saying, hurry up and pay for sex. Are you going to sleep with this girl? Are you going to sleep with this girl? And we're just, we're trying to tell him, hey, hey, wait, I'm just, I'm quite enjoying getting to know this girl first. So we'll stay with her for, you know, an hour or two. And then, um, when the time comes, we'll say, look, I'm, I'm feeling pretty unwell. How about I come back and see you tomorrow night? And we'll slip them a generous tip, which is anywhere between, you know, 10 and 20 New Zealand dollars. And we'll say, look, look after yourself. I'll come back and see you tomorrow. And we leave. Then we come back the next night. And often the girl, you know, if she's sitting with someone else or if she's on stage, she'll see us walk in and she'll come running over to us because she sees a man who was kind to her last night. She sees a safe man, a kind man, a warm man, a man who didn't touch her. And then, and a man that gave her a lot of money the night before. And then we'll do the whole thing over again and we'll visit two, three times, you know, as long as it takes until we feel like we have a, a friendship. And then we'll say to the pimp, look, tonight's my, my lucky night. I'd quite like to take this girl away and have sex, you know, please. And so we'll pay what's called a bar fine and a bar fine is a set fee in order for you to take a girl off site. Um, and so we will pay that fee. We'll walk her out the front door and, uh, you know, under the guise of going to, to sleep with her, but we'll take her to a restaurant or to a neutral location. If we have enough of a language, um, uh, if our language is complementary, like if, if our tie is good enough or if their English is good enough, we'll make a transaction. Otherwise, we'll get an interpreter to meet us and we'll say, look, I'm not actually a customer. This is who I work for. We can get you out of here. You can be safe tonight. Do you want to come with us? And nine times out of ten, the girl says, yeah, let's let's get out of here, take me now. So as simple as that, put her on the back of our bike, put her in the car, drive her to a safe home, job done. That sounds relatively straightforward. Relatively. I'm sure that, it, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that it's not. Um, and I'm sure that people don't take too kindly to their girls being taken away mm-hmm. from them. Are there times that you run into to trouble from that side of things? Because I can imagine they're there's a bit of danger involved with this as well. Yeah, there, there is a heck of a lot of danger lurking beneath the surface. But because we're not drawing any attention to ourselves and because we go in there looking like any other guy, acting almost like any other guy, um, the pimps can't be too um, – they can't really catch us because we have local men doing rescue too. Mm-hmm. So we'll send Westerners to the Western hotspots. We'll send locals to the local hotspot. And they they know that there's people out there like us trying to rescue kids, but they can't, you know, with hundreds of men coming through the doors each night, they're going to find it hard to pick which ones we are. And typically, if we rescue a girl from one place, then, then you know, there's places in Bangkok that I didn't go back to for a year. You know, I rescued one girl, all right, I'm not going back there again just in case they recognize me. So there's different methods we have in terms of covering our tracks, but the closest, you know, any danger has got is when one of our rescue boys got made and the pimp, you know, sort of lifted up his shirt and showed a gun and just said, look, you, it's best you leave now. And, you know, in those situations, you know, we know that we'll be back another night. We'll just send another guy in. So we're not going to kick up a fuss or, you know, put our lives in danger like that unnecessarily. So, mm. yeah. And, how many how many girls are getting rescued at the moment? We have, um, I should differentiate, Child Rescue in New Zealand mm-hmm. operates under Destiny Rescue International. So Destiny Rescue is the name that's most commonly known by, but yep. in New Zealand the name Destiny doesn't go down so well for various reasons. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but since 2011, we've rescued 2,300 kids. That's amazing. It is. It's amazing. That's incredible. Mm. Um, and I also saw that you have the goal of by 2020 rescuing 100,000. You've been doing your research, Chris. I've, I've had a little bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Google's a wonderful tool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, cool. So that's a, that's a massive, massive goal. step up mm. from, from where you're at at the moment. Um, and obviously funding plays a, funding plays a huge part in mm. that. Um, but rescue isn't the, rescue isn't the only part of this. If you took no. those kids away from what they're doing, uh, in, in these, in these brothels and in these kind of six areas and then, just took them someplace else and said, "All right, where you go, you're safe now." Um, they're going to end up. They're going to end up back there. Yeah. So how do you how do you ensure that they don't? Yeah, I like to say that if rescue, you know, if if what we do is a marathon, rescue is the starter's gun, and aftercare is the forty two k's that ensue because that's mm. the part that's going to make the difference, the most difference in a child's life because you know they come into our care severely damaged in so many different ways obviously physically so we meet those needs first emotionally we give them you know trauma counseling rehabilitation heal help heal as much as we can the deep emotional wounds that have been inflicted on them and then it's education we have in-house educational programs the girls learn to read and write they learn english which is you know massive for them in terms of employment in the future um, and we give them vocational training so it's different countries we have different options available uh, hospitality and and uh, barista courses hair and beauty jewelry making screen printing sewing different avenues that the girls can learn a trade and then hopefully get a full-time employment from it so it's multifaceted and it takes time depending on on how severe the abuse has been on some girls we have beautiful stories of girls who have been rescued on their first or second night of work and haven't been touched yet, which is just amazing. And they go through the course, you know, so much more quickly. But then we've got, you know, 15-year-old girls who have been in that industry for three years. You know, they were trafficked when they were 12 and then they had to put up with that life for three years. And so the amount of rehabilitation for them is going to take a lot longer just because of everything that's happened to them. But... The aftercare is a really beautiful process. At the same time, you know, we're trying to tell them, you know, you you aren't what's happened to you because of the girls have just been beaten down in so many ways. They've been told that, you know, that the only thing you're good for is your body. You're stupid. You're good for nothing. You're worthless. You know, the only reason we need you is for your body. And so the girls just come into us with, with such, with such a, a shattered identity, you know, and having their worth tied up and, in, in their body and in trying to, uh, you know, and, and men finding them attractive. So we have to do what we can to undo all that. And, and for us, we're a Christian organization and, and the gospel is, is so central to that. And us, you know, telling the girls, you know, we believe that there's a God who loves you and that who, you know, when you were growing in your mother's womb, you know, he saw and you he loves you so much you are so valued you are so important you are so special and when the girls start to grasp that that you know the god who created the world created them and loves them they just start to come alive and that is the most uh, has the biggest impact on them i believe um, as they go through that 
that aftercare process. Not all of them, you know, some of them are uh, Buddhists and we, there's no way that we, you know, force conversion. We say, this is what we believe. If you don't, that's totally okay. And so some of the girls, they don't, you know, become Christians. A lot of the ones who the message really hits, they do. But, you know, any religion is a choice. And so we offer the, the girls the chance to become Christians. And um, many of them do because it's, you know, such a great message. Mm. Mm. Yeah. How, so the girls go through this process and obviously it's, it's, it's variable. Mm. Um, it's kind of a, how long is a piece of string yeah. based on, on a range of factors. Um, but you're, you're having girls that are coming out the other side of the program. Um, and do you guys kind of track how they're going and keep in contact with them once they, once they get working, once they, once yeah. they start getting into, uh, back into life again um yeah. if you do can you can you share a story of of some yeah so the girls when they first come into our care are assigned a caseworker and that caseworker is going to walk with them every day from the moment they arrive at the rescue home to when they leave and then maintain contact you know one month three months six months a year two years down the track so there's always someone from our organization reaching out asking if they're okay um and that's important just so we know that, you know, we have statistics to say, yes, this is working or that, man, look, after a year, you know, 90% go back to the work. That isn't, that's not our stats, but we like to make, make sure that the girls are staying healthy, staying safe. Um, yeah, there's, man, there's a lot of cool stories, but, um, one of the ones for me is, um, uh, two girls who had, uh, been, been rescued in their teens they uh, went in through our hair training program um, turned out to be amazing hairdressers and then um, opened their own salon they saved up their money leased the premises bought the equipment did their own advertising and now you know an hour outside of Chiang Rai these two 19 or 20 year old girls running their own business you know they've gone from horrible situation into our care and now they're empowered business owners um, you know, just flourishing. And it's awesome. Yeah, that is yeah. that is really cool. Um one thing that I wanted to ask you, Jerem, is that there are obviously a lot there's a lot of hurt involved in this, um from a whole range of, of different aspects and you kind of you've been in there and been dealing with that and obviously that weighs reasonably heavily on on you at times um you get the you get the good stuff with the kind of the the rehabilitation stories Mm. at the end but there's a lot of pain that that needs to happen before you get to that Mm. point how do you go about keeping yourself healthy throughout that process so that you can keep going back and doing it yeah it's a good question um you know, for, for me, my relationships are, are really important. You know, I've got a, an amazingly supportive wife who, you know, loves me deeply and believes in, in the work that we do and she's fully behind it. So, you know, we, we talk about, talk about it all the time and, and we've always had, even through our whole dating relationship, you know, 100% honesty policy sort of thing. So anytime I'm, you know, struggling or, you know, we, we'd be pretty honest with each other about, I'd be pretty honest with her about how hard things were for me. Um, you know, 
I've got really close friends who I'm able to offload on, but by far and away, it's my faith that, that carries me. You know, I'm, there's a real freedom in knowing that, um, I don't, I don't have it all together and I don't have to be strong in myself because I totally believe that, that Jesus is strong for me and that I am only effective in what I do if I'm getting my purpose, my energy, my identity from Him. And so being able to, you know, deal with just the worst parts of humanity and, um, you know, talk with children and hear their stories and just be in the crap of the child sex industry, you know, every day um, and not hate humanity is, you know, it could get really hard, but I also know that the state of the world is what it is because people have rejected God. And I know that God doesn't want the world to be this way. He doesn't want kids to be raped. He doesn't want people to be living in poverty. He doesn't want people to have cancer. He doesn't want people to have, you know, brain tumors. He doesn't want people to have miscarriages. He doesn't, he doesn't want any of that stuff. But because the world is so broken and largely rejects him, you know, God is, is not, um, a taskmaster and he's not someone who demands everyone to be, to be robots. He doesn't say love me. He says, look, I love you so much that I'll give you free choice and you are free to reject me and you're free to tell me to go away. And humanity does that all the time. And what we see with child sex trafficking, what we see with domestic violence and what we see with all sorts of sickness, disease and poverty is the results of when people say no to God. And so, Framing, you know, my worldview and my faith frames everything, frames every part of how I live. And so even when I'm in the, I'm having a really bad day or when, you know, I hear a, a particularly awful story, my heart can break and I can get upset and I can be aggrieved, but I can also take that to God and say, God, I don't understand this and this sucks, but, um, but I know that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you're sovereign and that, that one day everything's going to be okay. So, you know, that those things carry me through for sure. Mm. Mm. Very cool. Jeremy, I'm just mindful of the time, mate. Cool. And, uh, your, wife, <laughs> your wife is going to be uh, finishing up work soon. Um, got a couple of questions that I usually ask everyone towards yeah. the end of the chat. The first being, can you tell me about a time that you've failed and what you learned from it? Yeah. Um, Probably the most the most recent failure for me was uh, was applying for a job and not getting it. Um, when I uh, I'd been uh, doing a few hours for child rescue when I came back, and I was also contracting to do some media services. Start of this year, I wasn't quite sure which path I wanted to take, um, and so a job came up with a um, sort of a communications role came up with an organization that I was really interested in. I applied for it. You know, people that I knew in the industry said, man, like you're a show in for this job. And so I was really excited about it and then didn't even get an interview. And I was, you know, I felt pretty gutted because for me, I felt like I'd failed because it was a bit of a slap in the face that maybe I wasn't as good or my CV wasn't as good as I thought it was. So for me, that was, um, that was, that was tough to take. But, um, you know, I believe there was a real purpose in that because only days after that, um, the current or the former 
CEO of Child Rescue resigned and then the international president, the man who founded the organization, contacted me and said, hey, they've resigned. I want you to, to take over. So I, you know, even at the time when I'd failed on that job front, I totally believed that was for a reason because this job was just around yeah, the corner. That opened and another door for you. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I think in, in, in hindsight, it's what I learned where one door closes, another opens. And I know that is so cliche. And, you know, for people who can't find work, it's hard, but, mm. you know, I believe that there, there's something out there for everyone. Yeah. And there's a reason that those things are cliches is because they happen all the time. Yeah. 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 Jerem, um, yeah. next question for you, mate. Uh, what was the last uncomfortable thing that you did and how did you get through it? Last uncomfortable, uncomfortable thing I did was uh, going to a brothel in Delhi in India a couple of weeks ago when I was visiting our project over there. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd done rescue work in Southeast Asia, but India is just another beast. You know, it's it's that much more disgusting, that much more dirty, that much more depraved. And, you know, we were in a brothel at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and it was packed absolutely packed with customers with men just you know just waiting for for their turn um you know with with the woman behind the door and in those places there's a waiting room and then there's a few doors and a man will go in a few minutes later he'll come out the next guy will go in a few minutes later he'll come out the next guy will go in a few minutes later he'll come out and there's one woman one girl behind that door i just felt really i felt terribly uncomfortable in there because at least in Thailand, I could speak the language and I could get by with a few people here. I was just, a, I was a white guy in a face of, in a sea of, of brown faces, you know, felt really, really uncomfortable. And, and it was just the, it was the, the depravedness, the depravity of the situation that made me feel uncomfortable and the, the heartache of what are 30 dudes doing here at three o'clock in the afternoon, you know, just, yeah, I, I, I I hated that, you know. I hated going into the the brothels in Delhi. It was just, it was almost too much for me to handle. Yeah, mm. yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty powerful. Did you did you get some girls out? Uh, not me personally, but our Indian rescue boys did. Obviously, they can yeah. they can speak Hindi and, and yeah. make the offers and stuff. I kind of went in there just to look around. I had an undercover camera, so I was getting some footage, but. Um, yeah, the, the other guys were able to get some kids out. Um, yeah, it's the hard thing about being, not being able to speak the languages mm. limits your effectiveness. Yeah. 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 Jim, what's the next uncomfortable thing that you're going to do? And why is that uncomfortable for you? Um, in the, this might sound, you know, fairly basic, but I, I find it hard. Um, in some ways approaching people asking for support mm. um, it is really hard um, sometimes I feel like I'm intruding on people when I call up you know a new business or a church or a school and say hey this is who I work for I really want to share our story um, and I don't I don't have a fear of rejection but it's never nice you know mm. and, and especially when I'm calling going I know that anyone who supports us is going to make a huge difference, but they don't really know that. They're just getting another charity worker calling on the phone. And so for me, almost every new phone call that I make, I feel uncomfortable because 
um, I don't want to be seen as just a salesman. You know, part of my job is is sales in the you know broadest terms, but I, and that's how people respond when when they hear, "Hey, I'm Jeremy from Child Rescue. I'm a charity that you know rescues kids." And then you get the, "Yeah, what do you want?" Or, "Okay, you can just hear the terseness and the shortness mm-hmm. in their voice a lot of the times." And and I'm just hoping and praying that you know the the meaning the depth the urgency of what we do just gets through to people um so yeah yeah i feel uncomfortable a lot of the time when i'm making those calls but i i push through because i know that it's worth it because i know that you know the uncomfortableness of being seen as a salesman or intruding on someone's time is worth it because the end result is is freedom for kids so that's sort of how i yeah Mm. get through it yeah that's quite a nice segue, Jerem. If people listening want to help you out or want to find out more or want to, to get involved with the stuff that that you're doing, mm. um, how can they do that? Where should they go? What should they do? Uh, jump online, www.childrescue.org. Um, they can email me, jerem.watts at childrescue.org. Check us out on Facebook. Just, yeah, everything about us is online um tell someone about it say hey i listened to this epic podcast by chris desmond and he had this this crazy story about a guy that you know works for a sex trafficking organization you know there's power in people just sharing stories you never know what's going to happen when you just Mm -hmm. tell someone what you've heard because that might spark something in them and then they'll go tell 10 other people or they might you know open up another door but there's real power in people sharing this even if it doesn't affect you know, to you listening, if this doesn't impact you, but you are thinking about telling someone about it, tell them because you never know what's going to come. Mm, definitely. Jerem, I've got um, I've got one more question for you, mate. But before I ask it, I just want to say thank you very much for, for sharing your time with me, but for sharing your story as well. Um, it's been, yeah, really, really powerful to listen to. And, and also thank you for all the work that you're doing and all of the it's really important work but there's a lot of hurt and a lot of um discomfort that you need to to take on yourself to to get these girls out Mm. but also to take off these girls as well to help them recover and to help them restore Mm. afterwards so thank you for for having the strength to to go and do that it's it's awesome thanks for uh thanks for listening Uh, it's it's been my pleasure mate um the last question that i have for you before we we sign off is um when you're when you're approaching an uncomfortable situation what are the thought processes that go through your head as you lead up to it i think it's helpful to to you know to be aware of those thought processes and realize that they're just thoughts you know it's it's amazing to me at at the power of of the mind to create to create its own reality in some ways and i think approaching an uncomfortable situation you know, fear and anxiety is going to be the most common response for a lot of people. It is for me. And I think it's healthy just to stop and actually listen to those thoughts. And then, you know, in some ways answer back to them and be like, well, 
why why is this situation scary and why am i going to feel uncomfortable because i think sometimes you know thoughts affect emotions and emotions can get away with us we start to feel you know sweaty palms heart beating dry mouth and then you know you're a mess after that but if i'm able to talk back to those thoughts Let's say this is going to be uncomfortable. You're going to feel awkward. What if they reject you? What if, what if, what if? And be able to talk back to them and then go, well, even if I feel uncomfortable, even if they reject me, even if this is awkward, everything's going to be okay. You know, I'm going to hang up the phone and I'm still fine. I'm going to be able to walk away from that meeting and things will be fine. I think for anyone in any uncomfortable situation they're in, um, just being able to listen to their thoughts and 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 analyze them and go, man, is that actually a legitimate thought to have? And then to go, look, even if the worst should happen, even if this is terribly uncomfortable, I'm going to be okay. I think, and for me, that's, you know, I'm still, even if I get rejected by the next 100 phone calls that I make, it doesn't take away anything from who I am as a person. I'm still, I'm still Jerem. I'm still who God made me to be. I'm still okay in myself, no matter what external situations are going on around me. Yeah. Awesome, Gerald. Thank you so much for getting uncomfortable with me today. Cool. There you have it, guys. I hope you took something out of Jerem's conversation with me today. Um, as I said, it's a, it's a fascinating insight into uh, what goes on out there in the uh, child sex trade and I think it's a it's an important opportunity that we can stand up and say hey this is this is wrong we we need to do something about it and uh, Jerem and, and Child Rescue are helping to to give that a voice so head over and see if you can help him out in any way that you can, uh, you can also help him out by sharing this episode out with your friends so that uh, people can can listen to his message. Um, so just hit share from uh, from your favourite podcast app. As always, I want to thank you guys for taking the time to to get uncomfortable with me and Jerem today. Thanks to my brother Jeremy Desmond for the amazing theme music. Uh, and we'll see you guys here again next week. Mm-hmm.